you have your Bibles with you tonight, if you would turn to the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 30, particularly verse, verse 30. You listen as I read God's very word this evening. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be now acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, may we learn afresh tonight the true meaning of the death of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. You know, these verses, uh, like the ones that were read earlier from from the Gospel of Matthew, speak of the death of our Lord Jesus. But what does his death really mean to us? You know, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you're familiar with it. The children go through the back of a wardrobe and they enter into a whole new world, the world of Narnia. You know that that world is enslaved under the spell of a witch. It's the middle of winter. And as the book says, it's always winter and never Christmas. But rumor has it that Aslan, the great king from far beyond, is coming, and spring is beginning to burst forth. Aslan is presented in the book in the form of a lion. Aslan finally does come, but one of the children betrays the group for a piece of Turkish delight and comes under the dominion of the witch. And Aslan, to free this child gives himself to the witch, who, if you recall, if you've read the book, kills him on a great stone table. Now, of course, the children are are horrified as they see their beloved Aslan being killed. And when they go back the next day to find the body, it's gone. They approach the hill to see the altar on which Aslan was slaughtered, and they're confused. The table is broken into two pieces, and Aslan is gone. So let's pick up the story there. Oh, oh, cries the two, cried the two girls rushing to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It's more magic. They looked around, and there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy? Not now said Aslan. You're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. 
Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? He said. Oh, you're real. You're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. <laughs> but what does it all mean? Asked Susan. What does it mean? Christ's death. What does it mean? You see, that's the question that we ask of this, of this great drama we participate in this evening. The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross is the turning point in history. It's the very axis of the Christian faith around which the whole of the gospel moves. You see, it's not just the end of the story. It is the story. But the question remains, what does it mean? Well, I want us to look at five key words this evening which speak powerfully to the nature of Jesus' death, and which tell us collectively what it means. These words are sacrifice, substitution, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. And so let's look at those in turn. You might want to follow along on the sermon notes that are in the bulletin. You know, central to the nature of Christ's death is the notion of sacrifice and the accompanying thought of substitution. You know, in the early chapters of Genesis, we see a wonderful illustration, I think, of these two notions. Adam and Eve had sinned, and they were in terror of the consequences. You know, God had warned them, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they fully understand at that point what death was? I don't know. Probably not. But they knew that whatever it was, it was serious. Consequently, when they had sinned through disobedience and then later heard uh, God walking toward them in the garden, what did they do? They tried to hide from him. But they couldn't hide. You can't hide from God. No one can hide from God. So we're told that God called them out of hiding, and he began to deal with their sin. God said that if they ate of the tree, they would die. And so we would expect him to carry out the sentence. They had sinned. So if God had put them to death at that very moment, not just physically, but spiritually as well, banishing them, from his presence forever, it would have been just. It would have been, it would have been right. But that's not what happened, is it? Instead, we find God first rebuking the sin, and then, wonder of wonders, performing a sacrifice and taking the animal skins and clothing Adam and Eve with him. Now, this was the first death that anyone ever witnessed. And I think it is significant that it was enacted by God. As Adam and Eve looked on that, they must have been absolutely horrified. 
Yet even as they recoil from the bloody sacrifice, they must have, have marveled as well for what God was showing them was that although they deserved to die, it was possible for another, in this case, two animals, to die in their place. The animals paid the price of their sin, and they were now clothed in the skins of these innocent animals as a reminder of that fact. You see, this is the meaning of sacrifice. It's the death, death of one on behalf of another. And yet the Bible teaches that the death of animals never took away the penalty of sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices, you see, were a symbol of how sin was to be taken away. But they were only a symbol. The real and only effective sacrifice was performed by Jesus Christ when God sacrificed him on the cross. We deserve sin. We deserve death for our sins. But Jesus took that death to himself by his sacrifice. He became our substitute by experiencing death in our place. And so you see... That's part of the meaning of Christ's death. He was our sacrifice. He was our substitute. There's a third word to help us grasp the meaning of Christ's death. It's this word, long word, propitiation. Paul speaks of it in Romans 3, verses 24 and 25, where he says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's an interesting word, this word propitiation. It also relates to the world of sacrifices. But unlike substitution, which refers primarily to what Jesus did in reference to us, he died in our place, propitiation describes that death in terms of its bearing upon God. The Bible says that God hates sin. He will not be in its presence. And so, you see, propitiation refers to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which the justified wrath of God against sinners was turned aside, and the love of God was enabled to go out and to save sinful man. Let me illustrate that again uh, from an Old Testament example. You all remember the Ark of the Covenant. It was one of the pieces of furniture in Israel's wilderness tabernacle. It was a chest about a yard long, covered with gold and closed by a solid gold covering known as the mercy seat. George uh, Roden knows how to make Arks of the Covenant for vacation Bible school. (laughs) The mercy seat had two cherubim standing on either end looking inward. And these cherubim had wings which extended out over the top of the ark. Now inside the ark were the stone tablets of the law of Moses. And the ark itself was kept within the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple. The most significant thing 
about the Ark of the Covenant is that God was thought to dwell in the space between the outstretched wings of the cherubim above the mercy seat. And you see, this is why no one but the high priest was ever to enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, he entered it only once a year on the Day of Atonement. You see, God was holy. And sinful men and women who came into his presence would be consumed. Now, the picture of that ark is a terrible picture. It was meant to be. See, there we see God dwelling between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. There we see the law that we've broken. And as God looked down upon the affairs of men, this is what he sees. He sees the broken law. So the picture tells us that God in his holiness must judge sin and that sinners are subject to his wrath. But as the commercial says, wait, there's more. Now the day of atonement comes. And on that day, the high priest takes the blood of a sacrifice and very carefully carrying it into the Holy of Holies, he sprinkles it on the mercy seat between the presence of God and the law. Well, what's symbolized now? I think you get the picture. Gloriously, the picture is now no longer of wrath directed against the violators of God's law, but rather it's a picture of mercy in which the wrath of God against sin is satisfied And the sinner is spared. Now when God looks down from between the wings of the cherubim, he sees not the law that we've broken. He sees the blood of the sacrifice. An innocent victim has died. He has borne our penalty. Thus, we can live. Again, the blood of these animals sacrifice could not actually take away sin. But what they did... They pointed forward to the work of Christ on Calvary, whose death would remove it. When Christ died, perfectly innocent, God's wrath against sin was literally propitiated, which God himself demonstrated by tearing the veil of the temple, separating the holy of holies from the the holy place. He tore it in two from top to bottom. And in this way, God showed that the way into his presence was now open for all who would believe in Jesus. Propitiation. God's wrath against us is satisfied by the death of his innocent son. Well, the fourth word used for describing the meaning of Christ's death is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19 is a key passage here. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to make one. So the background for this term is the broken relationship between ourselves and God because of our sin. We've already seen one example of this in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned and God came to them in the garden, they hid from him. You see, they hadn't done that before their disobedience. Before that, they walked and they talked with God. They were open with Him. But now the relationship with God was broken. 
And they showed their awareness of this by hiding from it. And men and women have been hiding ever since. We hide a variety of ways. We hide through a self-imposed ignorance of spiritual things, through our supposedly worldly sophistication. Sometimes we even hide, as strange as it may seem, through our religion. But God comes to us. You see, that's the glory of the gospel. And when he comes, he does what's necessary to heal the broken relationship, and he bridges that gap. In the garden, it was the inauguration of the sacrifices. On Calvary, it was the ultimate bridge to which the early sacrifices pointed. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And he means that it's on the basis of Christ's death that reconciliation takes place. Well, the fifth and final word for describing the death of Christ is redemption. Redemption is derived from two Latin words. Re meaning again and amer meaning to buy. So redemption literally means buying again or buying back. As in redeeming something that has been, that has been mortgaged, or something that has been pawned. We use that word all the time of material things. The Bible uses it to signify that we are gods, but have nevertheless fallen into bondage as a result of our sin. And now we have to be purchased out of that bondage, out of that slavery by Christ's sacrifice. You're familiar with it. one of the best examples is the Old Testament illustration of Hosea, who went into the marketplace. And he bought back his wife, Gomer, out of prostitution and slavery. It is finished. Christ's declaration from the cross, which I just read, it's particularly appropriate for understanding his death as redemption. In Greek, the phrase is actually only one word. The word is tetelestai, and it means paid in full. Christ's death has redeemed us. And so we return to the point where we began this evening. What makes the death of Christ so unique, and indeed marks it out as the focal point of history, is that it accomplished precisely what was needed to save us. We deserve to die for our sin. Christ died for us. We were under the just wrath of God because of our sins. Christ bore that wrath in our place. We were alienated from God. Christ reconciled us to him. We were sold under sin. Christ bought us back by paying sin's price. What does Christ's death mean? It means, to quote Aslan again, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic even deeper still which she didn't know. Her knowledge only goes back to the beginning of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards.
He who has ears to hear, let him hear clearly the meaning of the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.